Thanks, Charles. Yeah, and if you want to talk to somebody, have somebody pray with you after the service, Charles and I will be up here at the front. We'd be more than happy to do that as well. And uh, like I said, though, Todd would be so upset if, if his passing kept us from, from God's word, and we're not going to let that happen. And so we're going to continue in our series on Acts, and uh, it's really appropriate um, to go along with what we're dealing with. Um, but I wanted to talk about something uh, called, you know, like uh, being a master at something. Right? I don't know if you're like a master at anything. Maybe you're a master carpenter. Um, you know, maybe you're a master at golfing. I mean, you may have mastered some stuff, the guitar, whatever it, whatever it is. And I, and I wonder, you know, do you know what it takes to become a master at something? Well, there's this author named Malcolm Gladwell, and he said that one of the elements that it takes to become a master at something is that it's time. It's time over time. It's putting in the time for a long time, and that is a necessary component of becoming a master. And he says to master any skill, it takes the equivalent of 10,000 hours over 10 years in order to become a master. So let me break that down. That's 1,000 hours a year for 10 years. That's uh, if you 19 point, about 19 and a half hours a week. So if you did that seven days a week uh, without taking any days off, it's about 2, 2.75 hours, all right? So by those requirements, I am almost a master at scrolling through Instagram. And uh, if you have a toddler, maybe you're almost a master at yelling, get that out of your mouth, or just like <laughs> cleaning up stuff, you know? Could be a lot of things, right? So in 2015, this concept called Masterclass was introduced. I actually, I've actually had a subscription to this. Uh, and if you're unfamiliar, it's a subscription that helps you to learn from some masters in their fields, right? People that have the qualifications to teach what they are masters at. So let's say you want to get better at tennis. Well, one of the greatest of all time, Serena Williams, can help you through video to learn that. If you want to cook five-star meals at your home, then uh, professional chef Gordon Ramsay can teach you that and maybe some new words as well. Uh, <laughs> if you want to become a master at ball handling or draining threes from downtown, man, Steph Curry, four-time NBA champ, can help you to do that as well too. Um, now, of course, it's not just 10,000 hours. Like, I promise you, if I practice basketball for 10,000 hours, you're still never going to see me in the NBA. There are some other things that come along with it, but, but time is important, right? So these are people who have put in their time. They earn the right to be a master. And this is why I believe that we can call the Apostle Paul a master. The Apostle Paul, who the book of Acts uh, is a detailed account. Part of it is a detailed account of his life. And uh, uh, you're like, well, a master of what? Um, well, I'm going to tell you, because if you don't mind, I took, us, I took the liberty upon all of you to sign up for Paul's master class on how to endure hardship, all right? I know, you're excited too. Okay, so what makes Paul the expert here? Well, I would argue that Paul has spent the hours in hardships required to become an expert. He has the experience, that's for sure. Hours being falsely accused, hours of being beaten physically to the point of, almost to the point of death, hours spent in prison for the sake of Jesus. So if anybody has the authority to teach this class, it's Paul, right? Um, so why do you need to take this class? Well, the reality is Jesus said in John 16, that here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. Man, how true is that? So the question is not if we will suffer, but when, and how are you going to handle it? How are we going to handle it? So we're going to be in Acts, chapter 23 and 24. So if you have your Bible, open it up. If you want to use the YouVersion app, you are welcome to. We will also have some of the text on the screen for you as well, too. And we're going to be going through 23 and 24, and then next week we're going to 
We'll be looking at part two of this in chapter 25. Um, so the first session is going to be remaining faithful to Jesus. And so to give you a little bit of a context of what's going on here, I'm going to give you sort of the 30,000-foot view of what Paul is experiencing in these two chapters, 50,000-foot view. And uh, so the first one is this. Paul was forced to stand before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish courts, the ruling council, to defend himself. And uh, once Paul explains that he's on trial for believing in the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, the split Jewish court made up of the Sadducees who don't believe in a future resurrection and the Pharisees who do believe in a future resurrection, but they didn't believe in Jesus' resurrection, they start to riot because of what Paul is saying. So Paul's nephew warns Paul that 40 zealous Jews are plotting to kill him. So Paul is sent to Felix, the governor of Caesarea, for protection. Then Tertullus, Tertullus who was like a Jewish lawyer, presented the case against, uh, Paul, uh, to Felix against Paul. So he's saying what Paul has done wrong. So Paul gives his defense back to Felix. And though it seems like Felix knows that Paul is innocent, he sentences Paul to two years in prison, right? These chapters are filled with hardships for Paul. False accusations, a plot to kill him, a governor who knows he's innocent, but sentences him to two years in prison anyway. So Paul is starting to put in his hours. And what's incredible about Paul in the middle of this hardship is he doesn't get bitter at God, and his faith doesn't fade. It doesn't falter. Paul remains faithful. I mean, can you imagine the trust that Paul has in this? I mean, like, you know, I get a flat tire and I'm like, God, why do you give me your hardest battles? And it's like, <laughs> you know, Paul's in prison for two years for nothing, doing nothing wrong. And it, the Paul had this trust that allowed him to live a life that honored God with his life, even in the hardships that he was going through. And so let's back up just a little bit and look at three ways to remain faithful to Jesus amongst difficulties. So Paul, uh, and uh, the first one is this, to maintain a clear conscience, all right? So Paul expresses this idea twice in, in these chapters. Um, it says, gazing intently at the high council, Paul began, he says, brothers, I have always lived before God with a clear conscience. So Paul expresses these words to the Jewish council who are accusing Paul of preaching against the Jews and their laws. But Paul is adamant saying, I'm doing what God is asking me to do, despite what the people say about him. And then when Paul is addressing Governor Felix, the one who knew he was innocent but put him in prison anyway, says, but I admit that I followed the way uh, which they call a cult. These, this was the early church, those who were following Jesus. I worship the God of our ancestors, and I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God that these men have, that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. And because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. So again, Paul explains that everything he's doing is for the glory of God and the good of all people, even when they violently disagree with him. So in both circumstances, Paul can say can stay true to God and other true to God and to others because he says he has a clear conscience. Well, what does he actually mean by this? All right. Um, so conscience, the Greek word for this is is this word. It's pronounced sunidesis. All right. And according to the Greek lexicon, the definition of conscience is this: 
the soul as distinguishing between what is morally good and bad, prompting to do the former, which is good, and shun the latter, which is bad, commending one and condemning the other. So our conscience and our souls are used interchangeably here. It means the very core of who we are. The condition of our conscience, of our soul, determines how we think, how we speak, how we live, and what we choose to do. So there's two categories to our actions, right? There, is the, there are those things that are morally good and those things that are morally bad. Now, in our culture, there is a lot of gray in there, right? Some people would say, well, morality is, is subjective, right? The Bible, though, states that there are things that are morally good, things that are morally bad. There are things that are honoring to God and things that, that do not honor God. So simply put, this is what this means. Who I am, your conscience, determines how I live. Who I am determines how I live. Let's say that together. Who I am determines how I live. You can't trick your conscience. You can't manipulate your soul. You can trick other people, and you might be able to hide it or even ignore it for a time, but not forever. You know, when the filters come off, when the inhibitions are gone, the real you starts to come out. What's inside of you is eventually going to spill out of you, right? I will drive in my car drinking my coffee out of a regular mug, not like one with the lid. Anybody else? Any other lunatics in here? Just me? All right? That goes well for a while, right? You know, until I hit a speed bump, then what happens? Like coffee goes spilling out. You and I are like that mug, all right? When things are going well, we can keep, keep what's inside inside. But then when life starts throwing some speed bumps, the real us will start to come out. The real you is who you are under stress, under pressure. And this affects everything. I have learned that who I am, who I really am, is who I am when things are not going well. I'll be honest. I can stand up here and preach and see God working through that gifting, and people will come and say that the message impacted them, and I'm grateful for that encouragement. I can be a pastor of this church and display spiritual gifts, but the real pastor is who he is at home, not on the stage. Because I could stand up here, right, and I could present myself to be this godly, faithful man, but y'all don't live with me, right? You want to know who I really am? Ask my wife and kids. Now, my goal is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that those are not two separate people. And, and so this is why two times Paul says, I have always lived with or maintained a clear conscience. And so two things stick out to me here. Paul's conscience is clear, which means that the core of who he is, Paul is good upright, and his soul's direction is pointing towards God. Does that mean that Paul's perfect? No, but it means that his goal is to live above reproach. Does that mean that if you have a clear conscience, you know, we have that, that you and I are perfect? No, but that's what we're moving towards, right? We are consistently clear. Our conscience is, conscience is consistently clear. So in order to, for Paul to do this, he maintains it. He lived with or maintained it, which means that Paul, this is something Paul is working towards. It's not an accident that Paul's conscience is clear. He didn't stumble into a clear conscience. Every moment, or at least every day, Paul is working to maintain or build or grow this conscience because he knows the alternative will lead him down a path that will compromise his faith in Jesus. 
there was a, there's this saying that I try to live by, and it's this. Do what's right, not what's easy. Because every time you choose to do what's easy instead of what's right, you become the type of person who does what's easy instead of what's right. What that is saying is that there are no isolated incidences. There are no isolated decisions in your life. Every time you choose what's easy instead of what's right, the trajectory of your character adjusts slightly. And eventually, if you choose the wrong thing, the easy thing enough, you will become the type of person who automatically chooses what's easy instead of what's right. Paul wanted to choose what's right instead of what was easy or what was comfortable because he wanted to be the type of person who always did that. And so every time you and I choose to compromise, to just take a small step in the wrong direction, it adjusts the trajectory of your life and the trajectory of your relationship with God as well. And so I think about how Paul's pursuit of this clear conscience plays out. He doesn't cave into peer pressure, which there was a lot of. He stands firm in in his beliefs even when they want to kill him, right? I'd love to think like, yeah, I would do that, but when it came down to it, I don't know. And look how Paul's godly convictions spill out when he's face-to-face with this governor, Governor Felix. A few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, sending for Paul, they listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. As he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment, Felix became frightened. He says, go away for now, he replied. When it's more convenient, I'll call for you again. He also hoped that Paul would bribe him, so he sent for him quite often and talked with him. Okay, so Felix is playing a game here, right? He, he, he would like to get, like, he, and I think Paul understands, like, hey, he keeps calling me, and I think it's kind of like, hey, you could do something about this, right? Uh, and Paul does not cave into that, into that ability to, 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 to give a bribe in order to get out of the situation. There was, I mean, Paul could have done something about, him going to, about himself going to prison, but he doesn't do it, and this costs Paul. Felix puts him in prison for two years, Two years. I mean, you think we read like these things in the, old te- or in, the, in the Bible and we just like gloss over it. Like two years, that's a long time. Imagine going to prison for two years for not doing anything other than remaining faithful to God. But though Paul is in a physical prison, the reality is, is that he's free. He's free because he has a clear conscience before God and people. And so I want to ask, you know, can you and I say the same thing about our lives? Because Jesus said in John 8, 36, that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What does that mean? I was talking with a former inmate about three weeks ago at our Sandusky campus. This guy named Tom, he came in, he needed some, you know, financial assistance, and thanks to your generosity as a church, we were able to help him out. But he started to tell me about his life, and how he'd been to prison like five or six times, But he said he lived free because he no longer had to hide. He lived above reproach. Everything he did was above board. He had had a car. He had insurance for it. His tags were current. He said he just does everything right so he doesn't have to hide. And I wonder about you and I. Are there things, you know, that you still maybe hide, things that I still maybe hide? Because, Because being free means this, that you don't have to worry if you get audited. It's not it's not having to worry if you're 
wife or your husband or your significant own or your significant other or your parents want to have a look at your phone. It's not having to worry if your employer checks your browser history, right? It's not having to worry about getting pulled over. It's not having to, to, to keep people at a distance in case they ask too many questions, right? You don't want people to, to uncover the stuff you're trying to hide. Because who we are on the inside is going to spill out. It's going to determine how we live. So to determine who you are, maybe here's some questions you and I could ask ourselves, you know. How is my conscience? How is my soul? While it's never perfect, can I say I'm doing whatever it takes to keep it clean or clear, upright, and surrendered to Jesus? Is this something you're working towards? Is God's word guiding me, or am I doing what everyone else in our culture is doing, right? Are you, a, are you a picker and a chooser where you're like, hey, this Bible verse, absolutely. I love this one, gonna get it on my wall. This one, mm, I don't know if that's still relevant, right? But then that puts you in God's seat, right? Now you're deciding what God said is true and what's not true. Or this one, am I rejecting sin outright or am I justifying my sinful actions because it feels good to me or it's comfortable or it's fun because you and I are incredible salesmen, right? salespeople. I can talk myself into a lot of things that I probably shouldn't do. I'm really good at that. Anybody else? Like, I never have to talk myself into eating a salad, but I can totally talk myself into why I should be allowed to have one more cookie, right? We all, we are so good at that, right? I deserved it. I worked out, you know, it's like, I, you know, I'm so faithful, you know, God will just let me slip up just a little. It's going to be, we are so good at this, right? Or am I you just going to reject it like Paul did? You know, in the face of peer pressure, am I upholding my godly convictions or am I caving in to what everyone else is doing so that I can fit in or not have to take a pay cut or not lose my job or not have to deal with the consequences of what I'm really doing? You know, can we, like Martin Luther... Say these things, for my conscience is held captive by the word of God, and to act against it is neither right nor safe. Neither right nor safe. In Paul's masterclass, step number two is this. Do not speak poorly about your leaders. Paul says with a clear conscience here in Acts 24, verses 2 and 5. So this is another situation. It says, instantly, Ananias, the high priest, this is when Paul's before the Sanhedrin, commanded those close to Paul to slap him on the mouth. But Paul said to him, God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. What kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me struck like that? Those standing near Paul said to him, do you dare to insult God's high priest? Paul says, I'm sorry, brothers. I didn't realize he was the high priest, Paul replied. For the scriptures say you must not speak evil of any of your rulers. Now, we don't know why Paul didn't recognize that Ananias was the high priest, you know. Maybe he just was like, okay, there's no way a high priest would believe would ever commit, command such a horrible thing to happen. But regardless of Paul's reasons, he knew that he was wrong when he spoke to him. Because of Paul, because Paul is of clear conscience, he does two things we should take note of. He doesn't shift blame or deny or justify what he did. He didn't say, hey, that guy was trying to hurt me. He deserved it. He had it coming. I have rights. I'm an American. I may have thrown that last part in there. Right? But we say, oh, that wasn't right. They, they deserved it, right? He says he's sorry, and he owns his mistake. And we, you and I, 
At least I need to do a better job of doing this, right? When we're wrong, to own it. Don't you just hate when somebody points out something that you know is wrong? And what do we do? We try to justify it. We try to blame someone else. We try to minimize it. We try to defend it, whatever. You know, but we, we should own it and, and apologize. Own it right away and to stop blaming others. If my wife was here, she'd be saying amen. You know, and then Paul quotes the Old Testament Jewish law because Moses in Exodus, in the book of Exodus 22, says that we should never speak evil of our leaders. That can mean our work leadership, our community leadership, our country leadership, your church leadership. And I know I'm, I'm on thin ice here, right? Because you might be saying, I don't agree with, with, the, with the leaders in my life or how they're making decisions about our country. And I would say back to you, that's fine. You don't have to agree. You can be frustrated. You can have a totally different opinion. But Paul and Moses, speaking the words of God, says to stop speaking poorly about those in leadership. Because when you do, as Christ followers, you shed a very poor light on Jesus. I always think about, I think about John Wesley's words of advice when it comes here, when you think about people on the other side, on the other side of politics. He says, I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election and advised them to vote for the person they judged most, most worthy and to speak no evil of the person they voted against, to make sure their spirits were not sharpened against those who voted on the other side. You know, at the end of the day, we can't control who our boss is. We can't control who gets voted in the office. And sometimes it's a person or a group of people that may be making your lives miserable. But thankfully, God is still in control. Your boss is not ultimately in control. Our government is not ultimately in control. I am not ultimately in control. Jesus is on the throne. So be like Paul in step two and don't speak poorly of our leaders. Step three, allow Jesus to encourage and comfort you. Let's end with these encouraging words from Acts 23. It says, That night the Lord appeared to Paul and said, Be encouraged, Paul. Just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. This theologian, R.C. Sproul, he describes what's going on here. And he said, you know, it says, At that night the Lord appeared to Paul, but that word appeared doesn't really hold the, the weight of what actually happened. This was something far more intense. Jesus came so close to Paul that his presence would have been felt. It would have been tangible. It would have been real. And then Jesus says, be encouraged, Paul. This was personal, right? The risen Savior says his name. I want to stop here for a second because can you imagine hearing your name spoken by the Lord? The the creator of the universe, who is literally holding all things together right now, knows your name. That's the God I know. The one who knows his children and their names. The one who protects, who comforts and cares. Jesus' personal, personal words are directed towards Paul's faithfulness. And if the risen, risen Jesus says to Paul, hey, keep going. Keep being consistent. Keep doing what I'm asking you to do, both here and far away. I am with you every step of the way. If he says that, then I don't know what hardship or difficulty you're facing right now. When it comes to being faithful to Jesus, and I could, you know, I could guess that a lot of us are still reeling from the loss of our friend, 
But I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is near. That God is near. He is with you. He is calling you by name. You are his and he is caring for you. And all he's encouraging you to do is to continue to put one foot in front of another and to keep being faithful to his call on your life. I find myself, and maybe you do this too, so often that when the speed bumps hit, I find myself running away from God instead of running towards God. Let you and I, as followers of Jesus, when things fall apart, don't, not to try to fix them ourselves, but run to the one who can care for us. We all face hardships, and I, and I hope that none are as intense as what Paul went through, but maybe they are. Maybe you're being falsely accused. Maybe it's by a family member or a friend. You know, maybe you have a boss who's trying to convince you to cut some corners and maybe not be as detailed in your reports. Are these things easy? No. Are they fun? No. Are they cause for tears? Yes. You can't fix those things, and I can't fix those things. I can't take them away. I can't fix what's broken, but I can join Paul in encouraging you to live faithfully through them with those three rules. Maintain a clear conscience. Don't speak poorly of your leaders, and allow Jesus to, to comfort and encourage you. You know, we don't idolize Paul. He is, he is not God. We also don't idolize Todd Enderley. But we can learn from both of them. And we can be inspired by both of them. And we can carry on what they have started. Paul was a master at enduring hardship. And we can learn from him. I was thinking about what was Todd a master at. And Todd was a master at living for what mattered. He cared more about people than he cared about tasks or things. He lived for Jesus and for others, not himself. Todd lived for his eulogy, not for his resume. A resume makes you look good. How, how Todd lived made other people look good. And his eulogy will speak for that. Todd's, the post that the church created about Todd on Thursday, I just checked it, has been seen by almost 31,000 people. 31,000 people. You could say he made a dent, okay, in our corner of the planet in the lives of at least a handful of people. And I was one of those people. Todd and I were supposed to have coffee on Thursday morning, and I had to postpone it for a week because I had to be at, at a funeral in, in Sandusky. Um, and then the hardest part was going in my phone and deleting all of our future upcoming appointments because Todd was my mentor. He was like... He was like my favorite old person. And like, now I gotta find somebody else to keep me out of trouble. I was one of those people. I am closer to Jesus because of Todd, and so many of you are as well, too. And now he's gone. You know, and how do we process that? All I can think of is to share the words of Jesus and of Paul. Jesus says this, I have told you, that, I have told you this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And Paul says this in Romans 8, verses 35 and 37. Can anything ever separate us from, the love of, from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? or are persecuted, or hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death? No. No. It says, despite all of these things, 
Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who what? Who loved us. Father, I stand before you on behalf of these people. And God, I just ask for comfort in the only way that you can bring comfort. Because even though we are going through trials, even though there is so much sorrow, I know that four things are true. You are in control. You love us. You are good. And you are with us. God, I pray that Todd's life inspires us to place people above things, to live for a eulogy, not a resume. Let that inspire us as we go forward. Let Paul's life inspire us. Let your love empower us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everybody. Take care of yourselves.